So this is May edition of the review of the GI literature and other pearls of the GI world from GI Pearls. I guess this is as good a time as any to tell you where I'm getting my articles from. It will be GIE, the ASGE journal, any of the AGA journals, as well as journals from ACG, and anything else that pops up into my feed that is GI related in some fashion. And sometimes we random articles about medicine in general. So let's start with GIE. And May's issue of GIE is particularly interesting because it answers, or at least tries to answer, or it has articles related to two of the major issues in GI world. One is, when do you scope somebody who has an active GI bleed? Do you come in and scope them that hour, in the next six hours, next 12 hours, 24 hours? Does it make a difference? And the second issue is post-ARCP pancreatitis. Does indomethacin do a darn thing when you give it? So the first article from Denmark is titled Relationship Between Timing of Endoscopy and Mortality in Patients with Peptic Ulcer Bleeding, a Nationwide Cohort Study. And the study looked at about 12,000 patients, basically divided them into groups with high ASA scores versus low ASA scores. I'm just going to read from the abstract. In hemodynamically stable patients with ASA score 3 to 5, endoscopy 12 to 36 hours after admission to the hospital was associated with lower in-hospital mortality compared with endoscopy outside this time frame. In patients with hemodynamic instability, endoscopy 6 to 24 hours after admission to the hospital was associated with lower in-hospital mortality compared to endoscopy outside this time frame. So this is kind of makes sense, and the authors conclude, a period of time to optimize resuscitation and manage comorbidities before endoscopy may improve outcomes. And obviously the question here is, how do you know it's a peptic ulcer bleed when a patient is in the emergency room, you get called and saying, oh, there's a GI bleed, come in and scope this patient. You obviously guess as what it is, but most of the time you can't know until you do the endoscopy that it's a peptic ulcer bleed. So the very next article is titled, Timing of Upper Endoscopy Influences Outcomes in Patients with Acute Non-Variceal Upper GI Bleeding. And it's from the group of John Saltzman from the Brigham. And the work was done by one of the fellows, Naveen Kumar. And this is a great study. And the finding of this one may be surprising to our internal medicine and emergency medicine colleagues, but it's not a surprise to GI folks at all. And as anyone who scoped a patient before, we know that if you scope early, the earlier you scope, the more stuff you do. But does it really affect patient level outcomes in a positive way? And that's what the study really answers. And this is a retrospective cohort study, which basically divided patients into patients with Glasgow Blatchford score of less than 12 versus those over 12. And the conclusion is urgent endoscopy is a predictive of worse outcomes in select patients with acute non-variceal upper GI bleed. And there may be reasons for this as these patients probably got less resuscitation. Endoscopy could happen after hours. Not all your staff is available and maybe your interventional radiologist is not available. So once you find something, you might not be able to do anything about it. But I think this is a good conclusion and uh, kind of makes sense with what we see in clinical practice. And what's interesting here is that high-risk patients, probably it doesn't matter when you do endoscopy, but for low-risk Blatchford score, 7 to 8, some don't do well. So maybe early endo is not so good. And as John Saltzman says all the time, basically we can't tell who's actively, actively, actively bleeding. So in most cases, it's probably best to do the usual medical stuff like resuscitation and PPIs. So this is kind of compelling retrospective data. GIE also has a video interview of Naveen Kumar and John Saltzman discussing their paper, which is very informative and worth looking at. So the last article from this issue of 
GIE I wanted to discuss was, does indomethacin really work in prevention of post-ERCP pancreatitis? And the title of the study is Lactate Ringer's Solution in Combination with Rectal Indomethacin for Prevention of Post-ERCP Pancreatitis and Readmission, a Prospective Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. The best kind of trial you can get, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized. In the trial, the patients were randomized to four groups, normal saline plus placebo, normal saline plus indomethacin versus lactated ringers plus placebo and lactated ringers plus indomethacin with about 48 patients in each group. What makes this paper interesting is that adding ringers to indomethacin appear to work in preventing both post-ARCP pancreatitis and reduced readmission rates, but that's the only category that was significant and there was or at least not appear to be any adjustment for multiple comparisons as the comparing normal saline plus placebo versus normal saline plus indomethacin was not significant even though there's a slight drop in post-ARCP pancreatitis from 21% to 13% and decrease in readmission rates from 13% down to 4%. So overall there's a decrease but the significance was only found in the combination of ringers plus indomethacin. I think the answer is still out there and the trial should have gone on longer and with more patients but it's a step in the right direction. Moving on to an England Journal of Medicine, May 4th edition. There's an article about ulcerative colitis in it, and uh, this is tofacitinib. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Tofacitinib as induction and maintenance therapy for ulcerative colitis. And this is from William Sanborn et al. And this appears to be a study of patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who have failed other therapies were put on this tofacitinib. And uh, the response rate patients in remission percentage was 8% for placebo and about 18% for tofacitinib 10 milligrams. And there's also maybe a little bit of a dose response going on with 5 milligrams, a little bit less effective than 10 milligrams in sustaining patients in remission. 11% of patients on placebo were in remission, 34% for 5 milligrams, and 40% for 10 milligrams, which is pretty good. I think the saving grace for this drug is that it's oral as opposed to IV, as many new medications are. So stay tuned. Maybe you can add this drug to the armamentarium of treating moderate to severe ulcerative colitis with oral therapy. Tofacitinib. Oh, and I forgot to tell you what tofacitinib is. It's a JAK inhibitor. The other name for it is Geljans. Geljans. I think that's how you pronounce it, and it's made by Pfizer. Oh, and the New England Journal paper is also funded by Pfizer, just FYI. And moving on to JAMA Internal Medicine, there's an article about NASH, steatohepatitis, and pioglitazone. And I'll just read the conclusions. Pioglitazone use improves advanced fibrosis in NASH, even in patients without diabetes. Whether this finding translates to improvement in risk for clinical outcomes requires further study, and I think that's important. Even if you put patients on pioglitazone, are you really doing something or are you just waiting for a side effect? It might be worthwhile spending that time trying to get that patient to exercise more and do other things that improve overall health. And uh, But pioglitazone could be potentially added to the therapeutic armamentarium for NASH. The accompanying editorial does say that it is premature to recommend pioglitazone in the general management of this condition, speaking of NASH. So maybe more papers to read on NASH. Moving on to the Red Journal, the American Journal of Gastroenterology for May of this year. So it looks like there may be another option for IBSC, 
There's a paper titled Tenapanor Treatment of Patients with Constipation Predominant Irritable Bowel Syndrome, a Phase II Randomized Placebo-Controlled Efficacy and Safety Trial. So tenapanor is a first-in-class small molecule inhibitor, and uh, it inhibits sodium hydrogen exchanger in the GI tract. So this is a second uh, phase trial, about 365 patients randomized to different doses of this new medication, tenapanor, and looks like the highest dose, though it's 50 milligrams twice a day, works about twice as good as placebo. Placebo had about 33% response rate, and here is tenapanor, 50 milligrams twice a day, 60% response rate. And I'll just read the conclusion. Tenapanor, 50 milligrams BID, significantly increases stool frequency and reduces abdominal symptoms in patients with IBSC. Further research into tenapanor as a potential treatment for these patients is justified. So great, there's another pill for constipation. And in the red section, which is my favorite section these days, how I approach it, Sumona Saha from Wisconsin discusses management of medications in pregnant IBD patients, which is a hot topic for those of you studying for the board. So I'm going to try to summarize some of the key points here. So one thing this article reminds us all is that the FDA changed pregnancy categorization recently from the ABCDX that we all grew up with in medical school and uh, residency and beyond to a new system published in 2014, which made things even more confusing. But we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about specific medication classes, starting with 5-ASAs. What do you do in a pregnant patient with 5-ASAs? And it's probably okay to continue. Probably acicol is best and sulfasalazine is worst. Next category is corticosteroids. What do you do with those? You try to reduce the dose to the lowest effective dose. Next category is methotrexate, and uh, that's a no-no. In fact, stop this for at least three months before trying to conceive, and pretty much every doctor should know this one. What about thiopurines? Thiopurines are probably okay based on observational studies. There hasn't been any evidence of harm so far. What about anti-TNFs in pregnancy? Probably okay, especially if in remission. Uh, There's a recommendation currently to hold doses after 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy, at least until delivery. What about anti-integrins? There's very limited data on that. What about IL-12 and 23 receptor antagonists? There's data from psoriasis literature and no cases of fetal malformations, so for what it's worth, probably okay to continue. This article also discusses what to do with breastfeeding, but you're going to have to read it for yourself. So if you're looking for a good primer on central neuromodulators for treating functional GI disorders. There's a good one in this issue. Before, we had to kind of make our own table for all these medications and their doses and brand names, etc. But this article actually has a table with central neuromodulators and their dosage. With every drug class, you can use TCAs, SSRIs, SNRIs, miscellaneous agents, and antipsychotics. Basically, anything you want to use for any kind of functional GI disorders. And finally, the last one I'm going to mention in this issue is the hydrogen and methane-based breath testing in GI disorders, the North American consensus. It's a pretty good summary of what to use this test for, what dosages of lactose or any other sugar you want to use for testing for SIBO, what are the percentages and PPMs required for diagnosing of SIBO or anything else hydrogen, methane, etc. Good summary of what to use this test for. So that's it for now. I decided to keep these relatively short so you're not too bored listening to my voice.
I will release a second podcast for the month of May 2017 towards the end of the month covering the journals I haven't covered. So send me feedback and the articles discussed will be in the show links. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at GI underscore pearls, GI pearls, and leave comments on Twitter or on the website, or you can even find my email somewhere. Let me know what you want to hear. I'm thinking of doing some interviews later on, but probably we'll stick with just reviewing the articles 